He's very pragmatic. Uh, he's shifted positions on some really fundamental issues. Uh, in many ways, he's very technocratic. That was The Washington Post's national editor and former White House correspondent, Scott Wilson. He was talking about President Obama, but he could have been talking about James Madison. And we'll find out why in this fourth episode of Presidential. I resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. What your country can do for you. A date which will live in infamy. I'm Lillian Cunningham, and we're talking today about our fourth president, James Madison. I have a co-host of sorts for this episode, my colleague Swathi Sharma, who is the Washington Post's digital editor for foreign and national security news. Hi, guys. Happy to be here. (laughs) Hi, Swathi. Why is Swathi here? Well, she is here because James Madison is our country's first wartime president. The War of 1812 happens while Madison is in office. That's the war where America ends up fighting the British again. Um, And that, of course, ends up being the defining event of Madison's presidency. So a central question we'll be exploring today is whether Madison has left any lasting imprint on how future American presidents would come to use executive power during a national security crisis. So here's the catch. Madison is usually not really remembered best for his presidency, right? His legacy was made almost before his presidency. I mean, if you ask the average American, they'll remember that he was a founding father and that he was the father of the Constitution. But beyond that, it, yeah. it I mean, maybe stops the, um, the story about Dolly Madison, his wife, who rescues the portrait of George Washington from the burning White House. Right. And the um, fact that the White House burned under his presidency. Mm-hmm. That's and that he's short. Thing. And that he's he's really short. He's like he's five, four. <laughs> um, that and that actually is what a lot of people you ask know about Madison. Exactly. It's just that they remember he was so short. Um, So before Madison, we've had Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. Three very different men, but all with pretty strong, charismatic personalities. Well, Madison gets to the presidency, and he is not really charismatic. He is very cerebral, very intellectual. He has a legal and analytical mind where he wants to just logically reason through everything. This, of course, is what made him such a powerful author of the Constitution. But on the flip side, those traits made him a less magnetic and compelling leader as president. Our main guest in this episode is Jack Rakoff, who's a professor at Stanford University and the preeminent scholar on James Madison. So Swathi did the interview with him. Yep. Uh, One of the first things he told me was when he goes swimming at the Stanford pool every morning and he does his laps, the person he thinks about is James Madison, (laughs) which is amazing. It is amazing. But yes, I started by just asking him to give me some background about his road to the presidency. To me, the most interesting thing about Madison is that uh, he really found um, who he was and what he wanted to be only when the revolution broke out. As a young man back in Virginia, in the early 1770s, he was kind of aimless. I mean, not he wasn't just you know, sitting around moping. 
but he didn't really have a clear direction in life. He was unmarried. His father was still running Montpelier, you know, the family plantation. I mean, he was the oldest, you know, the eldest of ten children. You know, his father's namesake, Junior James Madison Jr. Uh, he must have been bookish as a kid, um, yeah. you know. And you know, of course, if you're stuck. If you're stuck in Orange, Virginia, every time I go to Montpelier, oh, they're saying, God, what an isolated place this is. I mean, even now, I'm only, you know, 100 miles from Washington, so it's not that isolated. But then it was really pretty close to the Virginia frontier. I mean, it's kind of the boonies uh, in 18th century culture. And the same thing's true in Monticello. So I think a lot about what is the nature of intellectual life. If you're someone super smart, like Madison Jefferson, you have to spend long periods on your own in the Virginia countryside. So he did a lot of reading, and he did a lot of thinking. Uh, he couldn't go to graduate school because graduate school didn't really yet exist, although Princeton University now likes to call Madison their first graduate student because he stuck around a bit after he finished his, his Bachelor of Arts. Uh, and then the revolution came along, and it gave him a career. He really found out who he was. He really comes alive as an adult uh, once he starts serving in the first the Virginia Provincial Convention, then the Virginia Assembly, then the Virginia Council, then the Continental Congress, then the Virginia legislature again, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and the interesting thing about Madison is I think he had an unusual set of uh, strengths, that he was a deeply empirical thinker. Uh, he tried to reason um, analytically, but he also tried to theorize it. He tried to think abstractly about, or somewhat abstractly, about the nature of Republican government. So Madison has this set of intellectual strengths that cements his status among the founding fathers. His passion and his strong suit is really that he's he's constantly studying and thinking through political theory. He was he was a part of a group who wrote the Constitution, but he did two very very crucial things. One is that he wrote the Bill of Rights, and those are the first 10 amendments in the beginning of the Constitution that are focused on, particularly focused on individual liberties. Right, exactly. And two, he wrote, he co-wrote a series of arguments that we now know as the Federalist Papers. So these were pamphlets in which he explained the Constitution to the average person and advocated for why the Constitution should be passed. So throughout all this time at the country's beginning, Madison's very close with Thomas Jefferson, The two of them are both from Virginia. Their homes at Montpelier and Monticello are not too far from each other. And they first meet back in 1776 when they're both in the Virginia House of Delegates and they're serving together on the Committee of Religion. Jefferson and Madison end up being friends and political allies throughout their lives. Madison eventually becomes Jefferson's Secretary of State. And that's the position he holds right up until he becomes president himself. Uh, you know, they. I think they agreed on most issues. Uh, their politics, I think, was very close. They were, you know, the joint leaders of the Republican Party in the 1790s. Um, a colleague of mine, Jim Hudson, who's the chief of manuscripts at the Library of Congress, once said, and I think this is a wonderful remark, that it must have been wonderful to have a friendship where, you know, which you really agree with the other person, but you reason about things in very different ways. And I think that's true. I mean, I think that's kind of a really interesting part of their friendship is that they, you know, in terms of political principles, they're not very far apart at all. Uh, although occasionally Jefferson, I think, was a bit of a street hitter. Jefferson will make bolder statements. You know, the basic point was Jefferson, Jefferson would form um, very quick opinions that sometimes went too far. Madison would have to read some back to a more tempered 
position. So there's a sense in which I think Madison was somewhat more, Jefferson was somewhat more enthusiastic and Madison was somewhat more prudent okay. in terms of forming judgments. But in the end, they agreed on most things. They're similar in a lot of ways, but their physical appearance, it's, they're completely, completely <laughs> well, different. Well, Jefferson is 6'2". He's actually a little taller than George Washington, but Jefferson slouched, so he didn't, he didn't right. look I mean, as he's tall. He's almost a foot <laughs> taller than Madison. Um, Can you just imagine them standing, walking, talking next to each other? <laughs> <laughs> well, he was, you know, he was short and he was slight, and so I have to tell my students, you know, if he mm. played basketball, he would... He wouldn't post up inside. He'd have to stop and pop from you know some distance away. Right. Uh, you know, some commentators say he was not the greatest public speaker. I think sometimes his speaking voice, you know, didn't may not have had the most robust uh, motor voice. But they uh, also have a sense that when Madison spoke, people paid a lot of attention to what he was saying. Uh, right. He was a very analytical speaker, and I think as a as a legislative politician, I think Madison understood the advantages of um, mastering the agenda, mastering the issues in advance. You know, Madison was very disciplined. You know, he, he may not have had the loudest voice and certainly didn't have the kind of commanding political, political stature. I mean, he could never run for president now. I mean, you probably have to be six, six feet. I mean, physical pre- and, and we know this from you know, studies. Right. Physical presence actually has some significant impact on you know, on how politicians are perceived. So, you know, he probably would not have made the best campaigner today. today. But, you know, in those days, he didn't really campaign. There were, you know, other ways to be nominated and to, to stand for office. Well, okay, so today, if if Madison, you know, if he was running for president, what party do you think his his beliefs would align with? Well, that's a great question. Well, for starters, he and Jefferson are the founders of the modern Democratic Party. I mean, they in their time, it was known really as the Republican Party. Um, but, of course, the parties have evolved in, uh, in, in massive ways. So, so one way to illustrate this is if, uh, you know, the Federalist Society, which is this kind of very active group of um, uh, conservative lawyers, they have a profile of Madison as their logo. It's kind of like their mascot. Um, and, uh, you know, whereas I think they really ought to have Hamilton <laughs> up there myself. Because um, uh, I think, you know, uh, I think Madison, you know, if there's one, if there's one other institution which should have uh, Madison as their logo or whatever, it would actually be the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, I mean, the ACLU are, in certain respects, you know, very strong Madisonians, part because, you know, Madison's the author, the principal author of the uh, original amendments to the Constitution, which eventually came to be called the Bill of Rights, uh, but also because Madison's whole analysis of, uh, what was, of how you go about, how you should go about protecting rights in American politics, uh, particularly his analysis in the 1780s, at the time when he's, you know, he's becoming the putative father of the Constitution, it all rests on the conviction that the real danger to rights is going to arise not at the national level. It's not going to happen because J. Edgar Hoover is going to run amok with the FBI, you know, the most systematic basis for violating the rights of individuals and minorities, that's going to take place within the individual states. So on that basis, I would say Madison really belongs on the left more than on the right. The more controversial aspect of this is involves thinking about how do we think about the relationship between the Constitution, which Madison did so much to write, uh, and the current impasse in national politics, which is really a complete mess. 
You know, I mean, nobody who looks at the American political scene today uh, would argue that our system is functioning as well as it should function. And so that's that's a big part of his legacy. You know, I mean, this is a terrible moment in American politics. I mean, it really is. If you try to be a fair-minded observer, I mean, the system is is, is functioning disastrously. Is that primarily a product of just the character of our political parties at this moment, or does it reflect on the nature of our constitutional system more broadly defined? A lot of academics think it's really the constitutional system that's the problem. That's the deeper source, because we have you know, too, too many checkpoints, too many opportunities to kind of sabotage what government's trying to do, you know, too, many, too many obstacles to successful decision-making, and so on and so on. And that was, I mean, Madison loved the checks and balances, right? Well, right. Yeah, we, yeah, Madison did love checks and balances. And, you know, scholars, it's an interesting phrase. You know, there's, it's now increasingly common when, when academics talk about the Constitution. They call it the Madisonian Constitution. The phrase has become kind of popular. And that is, that is a system of checks and balances, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, and, you know, multiple, it's, you know, we like to say multiple veto points. The president has a veto. You need to have both houses assent to legislation. So maybe having too many checkpoints, we'd like to think it's great for liberty, but maybe it actually does sabotage effective governance. I think a big part of the story is, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not a libertarian. <laughs> you know, and I think America's, you know, the, we make a lot of claims about what the founders, you know, the framers of the Constitution thought they were doing. The most important thing to remember is they actually thought they were creating a more effective government. I mean, they did believe that, you know, you need to have some checks and restraints. Uh, but I think Americans ought to remember they wrote the Constitution so we'd have a more effective, powerful national government. It wasn't written as a libertarian document. It wasn't written primarily to secure the authority of the states. It was written to create an effective national government. That was the whole point. Madison becomes president in 1809, and he finally has his chance to see how all this plays out when he's the one in charge. This puts our country's main constitutional thinker in the driver's seat of the government system that he really helped create. The one area of government with which Madison was least familiar was the executive branch. And the one area of government that he found most difficult to conceive and to think about uh, critically, analytically, was executive power. Madison's principal experience and his, his principal concern really lay with legislative power. The lay, I think, with the nature of collective deliberation. How it is that you get groups of people together to try to decide what had to be done. So the nature of executive power, he didn't have a great grasp of that. Hamilton had a much more sophisticated sense of the potentialities of executive power. In the 1790s, Madison and Jefferson find themselves spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to catch up to Hamilton politically. Uh, so it's only really, I think, after Madison went into executive office that um, I think he really started to kind of come to grips with what the actual exercise of executive power meant. Once he's in the White House, his wife Dolly Madison is kind of the star. She's the much more charismatic of the two of them. Um, and since Jefferson was a widower, Dolly Madison is really the first first lady to live in the White House. I talked to Julie Miller at the Library of Congress about their marriage and their dynamic. Well, you wouldn't find him very appealing, but <laughs> but Dolly Madison agreed to marry him. So why? He must have had some appeal. And apparently they had a very warm and successful marriage. So if you went on a blind date with him before he met Dolly Madison, of course, um, 
maybe you would have liked him. I don't know. But he was a scrawny little guy. And he was really smart, so you'd have to like that. So, okay, so you're going on a blind date with James Madison. It's the spring of 1787. <laughs> you want to go out dancing? No. <laughs> because he is writing an essay about ancient republics. I mean, he I mean he wasn't, you know, like just like utterly a, lacking in social graces, but he you know, Dolly Madison by virtue of holding these really very successful parties created a forum in which people met and discussed politics. So people who went to these parties and wrote descriptions of them would say things like James Madison, you know, was huddled in a corner with his cabinet ministers or something. But Dolly is in a very queenly way in her low cut dress is, you know, walking through the room, greeting everybody and introducing people to each other, for example, and recommending having little chats with various senators about various issues that concerned her and kind of making things happen. You know, I mean, she was a political figure, even though women at the time didn't couldn't have any official political role. She was, in fact, rather powerful. So she assisted him enormously, her husband, really enormous. It's hard to imagine him without her. She's a very important um, figure in his president. I mean, what I have here are some things about the burning of Washington that I okay. can talk about. But, yeah. Because um, that, that's really the most dramatic event of his presidency. Um. So, for example, when, and I should say for a scrawny little guy who was actually very brave, you know. Brave. In well, for example, the British had landed, right, in Baltimore, and they're marching up, and they're heading towards Bladensburg, and Madison, with a couple of his cabinet members, rode out on their horses to see what was going on. And he kept his cool, you know, he, which not everyone did. But ultimately, um, he... The White House, as you know, was torched. It was burned by the British. And he and Dolly Madison uh, separately left. And we have very interesting descriptions of what happened written by Dolly Madison, among other people. She writes how, first, she didn't want to go. James Madison had gone, and she didn't want to leave. But ultimately, she was she was told that she really had to leave. The, the British were marching into Washington, and she couldn't stay. So she wrote, I am accordingly ready. I have pressed as many cabinet papers in, into trunks as to fill one carriage. Our private property must be sacrificed as, as it is impossible to procure wagons for its transportation. I am determined not to go myself until I see Mr. Madison safe and he can accompany me as I hear of much hostility towards him. In other words, people were angry at the Madisons at the time because, you know, because the British were invading. But eventually she does leave, and she says, she writes her sister, it's 3 o'clock, August 24th, 1814, and she writes, would, would, will you believe it, my sister? We have had a battle or skirmish near Bladensburg. In other words, imagine that there's a battle taking place very close to where you are, and you, you have to leave. And she writes, and I am still here within sound of cannon. Mr. Madison comes not. May God protect him. Two messengers covered with dust came to bid me fly, but I wait for him. Then finally she, she describes this famous event where she took the portrait of Washington and she says, um, I, our kind friend, Mr. Carroll, has come to hasten my departure. In other words, she's refusing to go and people are coming to the house saying, 
you've got to go, you've got to go. So finally she packs up and she goes. So Mr. Carroll, she writes, is in a very bad humor with me because I insist on waiting until the large picture of General Washington is secured and it requires to be unscrewed from the wall. This process was found too tedious for these perilous moments. I have ordered the frame to be broken and the canvas taken out. It is done, and the precious portrait placed in the hands of two gentlemen of New York for safekeeping. And now, dear sister, I must leave this house, or the retreating army will make me in a prisoner in it by filling up the road I am directed to take. When I shall again write to you, or where I shall be tomorrow, I cannot tell. And there's a couple of descriptions of this. It was a very, very discouraging and dramatic moment when the White House was being destroyed. He was, his terms as president were overwhelmed by the War of 1812, which is a very inconclusive war with a very bad event at the center of it, which is the burning of Washington. So, you know, was it his fault? I don't know. But I mean, he had a burden. He really had a burden, I think. So the standard narrative is that Madison's presidency is a bit of a bust, even though they do eventually win the war. But that is not the take that Jack Rakoff has on it. Yeah. Well, the question of how Madison acted as, as president uh, is, you know, in some ways it's the most difficult aspect of studying uh, his career. Uh, uh, most scholars don't think very well of Madison's presidency. I mean, he's best remembered. Uh, as being, uh, I won't say incompetent or inept, but as being a kind of less than sterling head of the executive branch. You know, he's, uh, he spends his first term, you know, 1809, well, 1809 into the summer of 1812, he's preoccupied with all the diplomatic maneuvers that eventually lead him to ask for a declaration of war, uh, ask Congress for a declaration of war against against Britain. Of course, this, uh, the first two years of his second term, uh, were preoccupied with waging the War of 1812, which is not regarded as you know a great history of American military uh, successes. So any attempt to make sense of Madison's presidency kind of has to struggle against that uh, you know that pretty commonly accepted view that uh, he was not a great wartime president. You know, maybe one of the best expressions of this comes from Karl Rove, George Bush's uh, you know famous advisor, who who is a self-styled Madisonian. Uh, uh, his uh, his uh, his son's middle name is Madison, which is more than I've done with my two sons. <laughs> uh, but you know, putting that aside, Rove said uh, in an interview with the New York Times, uh, Rove said Madison was a great constitutionalist, a halfway decent Secretary of State, and a lousy president. Uh, and I think Rove captures the conventional wisdom, but I think that analysis is wrong for one basic reason. So I think when Madison became president, uh, he was anxious to demonstrate that you could conduct a wartime presidency consistent with his notion that even in wartime, executive power you know, had to be consistent with Republican principles. Did not make him into an effective leader, uh, but it did lead him to try to demonstrate, and you know, I think success, in many ways successfully, that uh, one did not have to become a mini-Napoleon in the United States to deal with the kind of situation that, that Americans faced. But, uh, although I, I, think, I think it has a lot of value in the experiences the United States has had over the last 15 years, or let's say the post-911 experiences, are, should be reminders to us that there is a kind of enduring legacy that I think Madison was struggling uh, to pursue, of trying, you know, how do you remain, you know, how do you remain a, a lowercase r Republican 
in times of national security crises. So that's, that's a serious issue. I think Madison thought about it actively. And Madison, under the presidency, is a very popular figure. You know, he may not have been the best wartime president. Uh, he may have, you know, maybe he went too far in terms of trying to conduct the war in consistency with Republican principles. But it didn't seem to have cost him very much in terms of public estimation. Uh, and I think there may be a big lesson in American history uh, to be learned there. The lesson being that perhaps Madison shows us you can get through a war and keep a nation intact and secure without having to use excessive executive power and bulldoze personal freedoms or the legislative process. Maybe it's not a simple story about weak executive leadership. Maybe there is a more complicated set of issues that one ought to think about. And it's a, that goes back to kind of perennial question. You want to have a Republican government, lowercase r, which we do, you have to recognize that we're always going to have to combine two principles that are not wholly compatible. We are going to be committed to principles of liberty, because uh, that's who we are, and that's our heritage, and that's what, you know, that's what we believe in. But we also believe in security. And it'd be nice to say that there's some constant calculus to figure out what the optimal outcome is in any given situation. But of course there isn't. You know, the way in which the ACLU thinks about civil liberties is not quite the same as, you know, how people on the right will do so. But the key thing is to understand is that we share both commitments. I mean, collectively, as a polity, we share both commitments. And, uh, you know, we support them both, and they're not wholly consistent. I mean, they come into tension. So, I, so it, it, would, it would be a hard case to make that Madison's uh, presidency left you know, a permanent imprint on how the institution actually operated. But that's not the same thing as saying perhaps a study of Madison's presidency might illuminate points that are still worth thinking about. Some of those points we're thinking about are, well, one, how do methodical analytical thinkers fare in the Oval Office today? And two, how hard is it to do today what Madison did in wartime? That is, uphold the Constitution and preserve individual liberties while still ultimately keeping this country safe. For that, I thought it would be interesting to talk to Scott Wilson, whose voice you heard at the very beginning of the episode. He's the Washington Post's national editor, and he was also our former chief White House correspondent. I started by asking him how hard it is today to be a strong presidential leader if you have a legal mind like Madison's, where you're constantly analyzing all sides of an issue and recalibrating your position. With Obama, it was apparent that he even drove some of his own supporters crazy with uh, uh, this quality of sort of being able to argue both sides of a point, which he would do publicly from time to time. Even the most sort of ideological points, he would show a certain understanding and even empathy for the opposition side. And uh, some of his hardest core supporters really found it kind of off-putting and, and confusing about where he actually stood on things, even though he usually came down about where they wanted him to. And, and so it did have this, this, the sense of putting people off in the, in the manner in which he was talking, the very intellectualized way that he would look at things and think about things. And he would say, look, this is the way 
democracy is supposed to be. A leader is supposed to be able to see both sides, to see all the arguments available out there, regardless of what party you're from. But as I think someone that, that a follower in particular, you know, wants a much more forceful ideological argument from, from the leader. Uh, do you think it's do you think it's possible then for Americans to see someone as a strong presidential leader whose um, whose stance adapts over time? I, I think it's most likely difficult for the country to see a strong leader as someone who is ambivalent. Um, you know, Obama often says the easy decisions never make it to my desk. It's only the hard ones. And the hard ones are hard for a reason. Um, and they are complicated. You know, a lot of other, uh, the sort of gut presidents, you know, George W. Bush, obviously, who Obama has used to sort of clarify his own presidency as something that is un-Bush, that is methodical and intellectual, where Bush was, um, you know, impulsive or instinctive. It's a reason why you're, you're watching the Republican campaign unfold in a way that says Obama's weak, he's indecisive. It's a, I think it's a characteristic that really easily lends itself to most people um, as someone who doesn't quite know their mind. I wonder if, I mean, it's too soon, obviously, to say with Obama, but um, it does kind of lead me to wonder whether over time, like how that plays out over time. So, you know, it's, it's hard to say. Ronald Reagan is seen as a very ideological president, and yet he, he, uh, he, he compromised in many ways. Um, and so does he look back as a weak president, as someone who didn't know his mind? Not at all. And yet he raised taxes, reached out to the Soviets, and, you know, did a number of things with Tip O'Neill that would now be seen, you know, by many in the Republican Party as an absolute appeasement. Uh, so it's, it's hard to know how history is going to judge and whether ideological presidents come out as, uh, as more important ones than the more pragmatic. Maybe the most sort of fascinating aspect of his, of his leadership has been how he's understood the role of commander-in-chief and what his primary responsibility is as a commander-in-chief. You know, the, the, the wartime presidents of the past expressed very little doubt, expressed basically nothing but certainty that what they were doing and where we were overseas and what we were trying to accomplish was right. And Obama, he's always felt a certain pull toward the soldiers themselves, the troops themselves, in a way that I think to many is very moving and to others can feel a bit crippling when you are trying to win wars and you're trying to talk about them in a way uh, that warriors like to be talked to about glory and accomplishment and sacrifice and achievement, not about um, suffering and um, returning home as different people. And so it's a, it, it's a very, again, it really depends on your taste, what you want to hear from the president and who you are and um, do you really want soul-searching from a wartime president or do you want certainty? And what about that challenge of balancing personal liberties and national security? How, do, how does that play out today? You know, in so many ways, the, same, the question is precisely the same. And Obama, 
you know, in one of his early speeches at the National um, Archives, talked about the acceptance of torture and interrogation, detention in Guantanamo Bay, um, and the and the you know the surveillance state uh, that of of the NSA, and pledged that the country would be different by the time he left office. In some ways, it is; in some ways, it isn't. Not being able to co- close Guantanamo is is one issue. But not being able to do much about, uh, not wanting to do much about the surveillance state and uh, very reluctantly being pulled into that after the Edward Snowden revelations. And you begin to see that this is a president who does not like to send troops into war, um, but has other ways, ways that are legally ambiguous and morally ambiguous if you talk about drone strikes and the attendant civilian casualties. Um, uh, that that is his way of fighting. So it's a balance he's talked about a bit too. Back to Madison. Madison's presidency ends in 1817. The war is over. There's a surge in nationalism across America, and not because Madison is any real hero, but because the government America put in place was tested by the crisis of war and it actually held together as a republic. He returns to his home at Montpelier in Virginia and he continues reading, writing, and thinking about politics throughout his retirement. In fact, just recently, a legal historian at Boston College, her name is Mary Sarah Builder, she used forensic techniques and found that Madison continued to significantly revise his notes about what happened at the Constitutional Convention all the way up until his death. She says Madison was probably making revisions in order to paint his legacy in a better light, especially as views on issues like slavery are evolving toward the end of his life. It's another example of how Madison is adapting, rethinking, revising his thoughts. That actually fits with Jack Rakoff's favorite story about Madison, which is what happens at the very moment of his death. So Madison died on June 28, 1836. He was attended by his slave, Paul Jennings, and by his niece, who was feeding him breakfast. Madison, you know, Madison was very infirm in the final years of his life. I mean, the last time he left Montpelier, I think, it was 1829, and he's there the next seven years. But his, his niece was feeding him breakfast, and uh, she noticed a kind of look kind of sweeping across his face, and she said, Uncle, is anything the matter? And he said, uh, he said, her only a change of mind, my dear. And then his head dropped, and Madison died. And <laughs> to me, because I, I spent so much time thinking about Madison the thinker, uh, you know, I'd love to know what was the last thing he was thinking about. Maybe it was just his breakfast. But I think the idea that here you have this very powerful creative mind, which was, you know, mentally active to the very, very end. You know, Madison, you know, when Madison dies, it's, you know, he's, he's deeply concerned about where the American Republic is going. I mean, so I kind of like that story, you know. It's like, only a change of mind, my dear, wondering, oh, God, what was he thinking about? <laughs> you know, but... Uh, and of, course, and of course, we don't know, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe in the next world I'll find out. This brings us to the end of the James Madison episode, but just one last footnote. Dolly Madison lives on for some years after his death 
and she falls into near destitute poverty. She has to sell off Montpellier, and she also eventually sells Madison's papers to the Library of Congress. One of their slaves, Paul Jennings, who's actually one of the men who helped save that portrait of George Washington from the burning White House, and who was also with James Madison when he died, he ends up writing a memoir. And in it, he writes that toward the end of Dolly's life, quote, she was in a state of absolute poverty, and I think sometimes suffered for the necessaries of life. Paul Jennings then goes on to say that he, quote, occasionally gave her small sums from my own pocket, though I had years before bought my freedom of her. There's probably no more powerful way to end the episode than that. So now this really is the end of our James Madison episode. Next week, we'll be talking about James Monroe. Among other things, we'll look at the interesting twists and turns of the legacy of the Monroe Doctrine, and we'll also take more of a look at the personal finances of presidents and how a number of them, including Monroe, ended up in debt. Special thanks this week to my guests Swathi Sharma, Jack Rakov, Julie Miller, and Scott Wilson. Music for the podcast is by Dave Wessner. And as always, if you want more facts and discussion about Madison, or to see images actually from his home at Montpelier, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram all week talking about Madison at presidential underscore WP. Have a great week. Hi there, Lillian again. If you're enjoying Presidential, check out another podcast I made right afterward called Constitutional. It's a deep dive into the story of our country's founding document. From abolition and civil rights to suffragists and the fight for the 19th Amendment. Women should have the vote because it's unjust, shameful, and cowardly for men to deprive women of that they demand for themselves. It explores the revolutionary figures who advanced our understanding of free speech, religious freedom, the right to bear arms, immigration, Native American rights. For the first time in the 103-year history of the United States, a federal judge had declared that an Indian, from that point forward, would have to be regarded as a person. And it takes you back in time to the original battle of ideas at the Constitutional Convention. There was nothing dry or dusty about it. This is the most radical body of democratic deliberation ever assembled. These struggles, from 1787 all the way up to today, constitute the story of America. You can listen to The Constitutional Podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash constitutional, or you can find it on whatever your favorite podcast platform is.